0: Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in the Gospel of Mark to chapter 7, and I'll begin by reading our text, which is verses 24 to 30 of Mark chapter 7. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre, and when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, "'Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs.' But she answered and said to him, "'Yes, Lord,' But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Well, as we come to this portion of Mark, verse 24 of chapter 7, we arrive at a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. for most of Mark's gospel, up until this time, Jesus has poured himself and his energies into ministering to the masses in the region of Galilee, the northern part of Palestine. Multitudes have thronged to him. They've come to him in private homes, at the seaside, in the synagogues, in the cities, in the villages, in the countryside. Many have been instructed. Many have been healed. Many have been delivered from demon possession. But now the Lord Jesus is going to enter a new phase of his ministry as he marches onward toward his ultimate destination, the cross. Here at verse 24 of Mark 7, there's a break. The great Galilean ministry, as it is known, is going to give way to the retirement ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is retiring from ministry. It means that he's going to shift his focus from ministering to the masses to doing more uh, focused instruction of the 12 to train them for what is coming. There's still going to be public ministry, but the emphasis will shift to training the 12 apostles, which is so crucial to the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus, especially after he leaves the earth. So this morning from these verses I read, we will see three things the departure of Jesus to Tyre, the dialogue between Jesus and this needy Gentile woman, and then the deliverance by Jesus of the woman's daughter. First, the departure of Jesus to Tyre. Note the place to which Jesus departed. Verse 24 says, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. Now, about the city of Tyre, we can say several things. It was an ancient city, Tyre, along with the city of Sidon, were the two major cities of Phoenicia, about 20 miles north of Palestine on the Mediterranean Sea, modern-day Syria. Very early, Tyre became a leader in the sea trade. They traded with many nations. They became very wealthy as a result of their trade. Isaiah 23.8 says of Tyre, who has planned this against Tyre? the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. But it also was a city who became very proud and very boastful of its accomplishments. And the Old Testament prophets bring several indictments, or God does through the prophets, bring several indictments upon the city of Tyre. I'll read to you one of them from Ezekiel 28, only part of the long indictment. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God's in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God. Although you make your heart like the heart of God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself and have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries by your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. Often, judgment is pronounced against Tyre. They were also idolaters. They worshiped the Canaanite goddess of sensual love, Astart, whose Hebrew name was Ashtoreth. She was a a wooden uh, goddess, a goddess of fertility, and it called for very sensual and immoral worship. So God brought judgment upon Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to it for 13 years. In 322 BC, Alexander the Great conquered it after a seven-month siege the proverbial wickedness of Tyre. Remember, Jesus had gone to this region of Tyre. The proverbial wit- wickedness of Tyre can be heard in Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty one 21, and 22. He says these words, which tell us something about the wickedness of Tyre. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are contemporary cities of Christ. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, these contemporary cities are going to have greater judgment, but the point is Tyre and Sidon were wicked cities. They're going to be judged for their wickedness. Now, you're going to be judged even more severely because you have even more light than they. But the point that is being made in Jesus going to Tyre, the region of Tyre, is that this is Gentile territory. These are pagan Gentiles. A commentator, William Lane, says this. This was apparently Jesus' only excursion beyond the ancient borders of Israel. And throughout his ministry, he avoided having much contact with Gentiles. So Jesus, for the first and only time, is going to leave Palestine and venture into Gentile territory. And the question that looms in our minds is, is there any hope? for Gentile salvation. So we see the place to which Jesus went. Now, what was his plan? We saw where he went, the region of Tyre, 20 miles north of Palestine, leaving the Galilean ministry. But why did he go? Well, verse 24 says that when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Remember back in chapter 6, Jesus wanted some alone time with his disciples. And he got it somewhat, but then it was interrupted by the crowd. He fed the 5,000. They tried to make him king. He crossed over to Gennesaret. And he hasn't had a time alone with the disciples since. It appears that Jesus went north to that region in order to get some downtime, some alone time with his disciples. The shadow of the cross was looming over him. And he must sense the need for more concentrated teaching and training of the twelve in preparation for what was coming down. Just to give you a preview of what's coming, in 8.31, Jesus says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In chapter 9, verse 31, where he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. In chapter 10, verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on the road ahead of them, and they were amazed, and they followed. those who followed were fearful. You see, Jesus is seeing the need to get alone with his disciples and to train them and teach them, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised again. And time is running out. His appointment with the cross is approaching. And so we see that his plan was to shift his focus from ministry to the masses to focusing more on training the 12. And so the great Galilean ministry fades into the retirement ministry. One commentator believes that it was a six-month period between April and October of uh, the year 29. And Jesus knows that in order to give that quality teaching and training to the disciples, he can't be distracted by the masses. He needs some seclusion. He needs some anonymity. And I want to pause here and just make application to ourselves. Here we see that Jesus' ministry is a whole, but it had various phases that it passed through. It was not static. There was a season of time when Jesus taught the masses, the multitudes, and now he's shifting to a time when he's going to concentrate on the 12. In a sense, it reminds me of my experience in the last 15 years with the Amish ministry. When God opened that up 15 years ago, we had Bible studies with 40, 50, 60 people. What a privilege to teach these Amish who were coming to faith in Christ. And, um, but then it, that only lasted about two years. And then they all got either kicked out or left because of their faith, and they disseminated into various churches. And my ministry, as I put it, became less extensive and more intensive. It shifted. I no longer had the big Bible studies, but it was more meeting with small groups, accountability groups, mentoring people one on one. There was a shift in the ministry. And likewise with your life, your life is not static, is it? It goes through various phases and stages. You change locations, you move to a different place, you change jobs. You change churches. You go from being single to being married. Right, Charity? Something coming up for you? You go from being married without children to being married with a a child, right? And then you have more children that come. And then there's that unsettling reality, at least it was for me, of the empty nest. Been raising these kids for decades, and now they're gone. What do I do now? Who am I? And, and so that's a phase, the empty nest phase of life. Some of the changes we initiate, and some changes are outside our control. They're brought upon us by God. But whatever the case, how should we navigate these changes, these shifts in our lives? First of all, we should accept those changes as coming from our Heavenly Father, and we should seek to glorify Him in whatever stage or phase of life we are in. And then we should embrace those changes as providing new opportunities and new ways to serve the Lord and to do his will. And then we should face those changes with the strength and the grace that God supplies. And then we should seek in each phase of life to learn, Lord, what do you want to teach me about myself What do you want to teach me about yourself? So like Jesus, shifting his focus, there will be changes in different seasons and stages of our lives, and we need to adjust by the grace of God. But one other point under this first point, the popularity. We've seen the place to which Jesus went. We saw the plan. He wants some alone time with his disciples. But then note the popularity. Um, Complete anonymity for Jesus was impossible, It says at the end of verse 24, yet he could not escape notice. Earlier on in Mark, when Jesus was teaching by the seaside, we are told that there were people there from Tyre and Sidon. And so Jesus' fame had gone out, and he couldn't have any anonymity. His reputation as a compassionate healer and a man of power had preceded him, and so he did not find the anonymity that he wanted. But now we come to the heart of the story, the dialogue with a needy Gentile woman. First, note the trial in her life, verses 25 and 26. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking, Him to cast the demon out of her daughter. The trial in her life. So Jesus' cover was blown. He was known as the healer, as the miracle worker. And a woman in the vicinity comes to him. She is from Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon are main cities of Phoenicia. And Phoenicia is part of the province of Syria, hence Syro-Phoenician, modern-day Syria. Her ancestors were the wicked Canaanites, the ones the Israelites were told to destroy. She is descended from the idolatrous people who worshiped that that goddess Ashtoreth. And Mark wants to emphasize here that this woman is a non-Jew. She's a pagan Gentile. And remember, Mark is writing to Romans who are non-Jews, Gentiles, and that would have been of great interest to them. But she's facing perhaps the greatest trial of her life. Her daughter, Mark says little daughter. Mark seems to like diminutives. Jairus says, My little daughter is at the point of death. And maybe for interest, he he likes diminutives. And Mark says, Little daughter. My little daughter is at the point of death. That's what Jairus said. But this little daughter was possessed by a demon. Now we know what demons are they are fallen angels, and they are vicious in their cruelty. Demons are described elsewhere as coming upon a little boy and trying to get him to cast himself into the fire and into the water, to burn himself, and to drown himself. There is no grace in demons. They are totally graceless. There's no trace of compassion in them. The fact that this was a little girl of tender age and relative innocence would have done nothing to soften their malice, and their cruelty. And imagine a mother, some of you are mothers, having to watch her little daughter be overtaken by this spirit. We know that demon spirits control personalities. They control the vocal cords of people. They control their motor functions. They impel people to inflict self-harm as they tried to do with that little boy. Remember the man wandering the tombs, gashing himself with stones because of the demons? that possessed him. And this mother is helpless to protect her daughter from these things. Now, we know, you know personally, if you're a mother, you know that a mother's love is great. A mother's love has enabled her to do courageous feats and often feats of great strength. If her child is in a burning building, a mother's going to run into that building to rescue that child at the risk of her own life. If her child is being threatened to be kidnapped by a strong man, she will fight bitterly, viciously, tooth and nail to free her child from a strong man. And you mothers know it. God has put that in you and you would do that. But here in this case, the mother is helpless. This little girl is in the grip of a power that is too great for mortal strength. The abductor is invisible and has a power against which the greatest moral strength was futile. And so her desperation, her agony, her anxiety is seen in that she comes and he falls at Jesus' feet in humble dependence and in utter abandonment of her cause to him. On top of that, it says she kept asking. The Greek imperfect tense means she was continuing to ask and plead with Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Truly, the woman is at the end of herself. In her desperation, in her anxiety, in her utter helplessness, at her wit's end, she comes to Jesus and casts herself at his feet. Let me just pause here and make an application to ourselves. She's at the end of herself. She's at her wit's end. She has no power, no ability to deliver her daughter from this demon. If you're a Christian, aren't you thankful that at some point in your life, God brought you to your wit's end? It's the only way anybody ever becomes a Christian. You came to the end of yourself where you realized everything within yourself to make yourself right with God, to free yourself from guilt or maybe to free yourself from some nasty enslaving habit that was destroying you and others, that you were utterly helpless. That's when you cast yourself at the feet of Jesus, right? That's when you came and cast yourself at the foot of the cross and said, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, whether you use those words or not. So, If you're a Christian, you can thank God that he brought you to a great trial in your life to the point where you were desperate for Jesus Christ and desperate in different ways. Some people are weighed down with the guilt of sin. Others are burdened by the fact that I've got this habit that I'm enslaved to and I can't break it and it's ruining my life and my family. In my case, As I recall my conversion 51 years ago, it wasn't one particular sin. It wasn't guilt so much as this sense of lostness, this sense of alienation from God, which was bringing me into a deep depression. But whatever God uses, he always brings you to the end of yourself. As I have said, no one ever casually comes to Jesus. Like I have said before, I think I'll come to Jesus today. I think that would be nice to add a little religion. No, that's not how you come. You come, Lord, I need I need you. And then, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this tells you the point to which you need to get. If you're going to become a Christian, some of you children, you're not going to come casually. You're going to come with a, a felt sense of desperate need for Jesus. Our one son, we don't know when he was converted, but we know he had a crisis at age five. He lay in his bed at night, his eyes as big as saucers. He couldn't sleep. He said, I'm in the devil's kingdom. I'm in the devil's kingdom. That's a five-year-old. And we shared the gospel with him, and he seemed to find relief. Was that his conversion? Was it later? We don't know. But that was a crisis for a five-year-old. I'm in the devil's kingdom, and I'm terrified. That can happen to you if you're five. You need to get to the place where you're at the end of yourself, and you see, I need Jesus desperately, and then another application before we move on. I remind you parents of what I think you well know, the stark reality of the fact that though your children may not be demon-possessed, and I'm not aware of any who are demon, demonized, if they have not repented and put their faith in Jesus for salvation alone, even though they're not demonized, they are in the same kingdom as the demonized. They are in the devil's kingdom. And that was the conviction of my little five-year-old son many years ago. I'm in the devil's kingdom. And he was right. And you know that you need to do everything you can by the grace of God to bring them out of that kingdom and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You need to use every means of grace. And what are the means of grace? Bringing them under the public teaching and preaching of the gospel. God uses his preached word. It means having family devotions, leading as a father, bringing them into the word of God and prayer in your family worship times, dealing with them when they sin, bringing the law of God upon them to show them that they are lawbreakers and sinners, and then bringing them the balm of the gospel, never leaving them under the crushing power of the law, but telling them, son, daughter, there's relief from that. Jesus died to pay for your sin and to change you getting them to memorize scripture, especially scriptures that relate to their particular sins and struggles, introducing them to a little private devotional time where they're reading the Bible on their own. And then parents, not living hypocritically in front of them, but by the grace of God, living a consistent life and modeling the Christian life in front of them. Do everything you can. God alone can save our children, but we are to use the means of grace to bring them out of the devil's kingdom And like this woman, she was coming to Jesus. And that's what we want to do with our children. We want to bring them to Jesus. So we see the trial in her life, but now the trial of her faith. The woman comes to Jesus with perhaps the most crushing trial of her life. She's about to face a great trial of her faith. As she pours herself out in humble, desperate pleading to Jesus, the response from our our gracious, compassionate Lord is rather stunning. And maybe a little bit unexpected. On the surface, he seems to be rebuffing her and and putting her off. Verse 27, he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What are we to make of Jesus' seemingly uncaring words? Well, first of all, Jesus was teaching this woman something about God's big picture plan of salvation. He's saying something about God's master plan of redemption. See, the children are referring to the Jewish people, right? They were God's chosen people. When God decided to to narrow his focus in his dealings with mankind, he focused on one nation, the people of Israel. They alone were his chosen people, his covenant people. Amos 3.2 says, God says to Israel, you only do I have of all the nations of the earth, They were the unique objects of the love of God. But God's ultimate plan was not to be restricted to the Jews. Even as he promised to make Abraham a great nation, several times in Genesis, he promises, through you, all the families of the the earth will be blessed. Yes, I'm going to make you a great nation. You'll be the father of Israel. But Abraham, I have greater plans for your posterity. Through you and through the nation of Israel, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And God gave foretastes of the blessing to the nations by dealing graciously with Gentiles, even under the Old Covenant. You think of Naaman the Syrian, right? He was a Gentile, and yet God blessed him and God healed him. The widow of Zarephath, who ministered to Elijah, and Elijah to her, in the land of Sidon. Rahab the harlot was a Gentile that God saved wonderfully. Ruth the Moabitess, one of the Gentiles, Saved in Old Testament history, the prophets in turn pointed to a broader reign of Messiah. I'll just read one passage, Psalm 72. See, God chose the Jewish people to be his people, but God's long-range plan was beyond the Jewish people. Psalm 72, 8 through 10, a Psalm of Solomon, interestingly, says, may he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. And so the prophets indicate in the psalmist that his kingdom is going to be broader than the Jewish people. But even in bringing messianic salvation to the ends of the earth, there was still this God-given priority. Paul says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is for the Jew first and then the Greek. And Paul not only preached that, he actually practiced it. Whenever he went to a city, he went first to the synagogue to preach to the Jews. Here's an example. In Pisidian Antioch, he goes to the synagogue, but the Jews revolt. Listen to this in Acts 13, 46. It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, you Jews. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So do you see the point here? Since God had prepared the Jews for centuries by their history, by their scriptures, by the covenant promises he had made to them, he had prepared them to expect the Messiah, he purposed to give them, the Jews, the first opportunity to receive the Messiah. John 1.11, he came to his own, his own people, and his own received him not. And that's what Jesus appears to be saying to this woman in verse 27, when he says, let the children be satisfied first. The children are the Jews. They're the covenant people of God. They have first claim upon Messiah and his salvation. And she's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. And it would not be good to reverse that priority. It would be like a father feeding his dogs first and then his children. And Jesus said that would be wrong. So get the picture. This woman comes with a desperate need. She's a Gentile. She's a non-Jew. Rather than grant her request immediately, as Jesus so often does, he seems to be putting her off. He seems to be refusing her. He says, in effect, look, you're not a Jew. You're you're not a child. You're a non-Jew. You're a dog, not a child in the household. But the key question still remains unanswered. Why did Jesus talk to her in that way? I believe the only satisfying answer is to say that Jesus was testing her faith. Now, on the one hand, let's be clear. Jesus was not being harsh or cruel in what he said. He was not being unkind. Jesus is without sin. He's holy, harmless, undefiled. He never sinned with his tongue. And we can't imagine Jesus speaking harshly and hatefully to this woman. Now, many of the Pharisees with hate in their heart, would speak with curled lip of contempt toward those Gentile dogs. But the word they used was of the wild, you know, dogs that that would just roam the streets. That's not the word Jesus uses here. He doesn't call her a dog in that sense of a mangy, ownerless, wild dog. It's a puppy. It's a household pet. Let the children be satisfied first. So on the one hand, Jesus was not being unkind. He was not being harsh. But on the other hand, he was testing her faith. Why? Well, as Matthew Henry says, and as I said at the outset, it was to prove and improve her faith. And we ask, does our Lord do that? Yes. I gave you illustrations at the beginning. He did it with Jairus, right? He didn't, he delayed going. And it was so frustrating to Jairus. He wanted to improve his faith. Don't be afraid any longer, Jairus. Only believe. He wanted to deepen his faith. He did it with Lazarus, his sisters. Your friend Lazarus is sick. Did Jesus hasten there? No, he delayed two days. Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. He knew what he was doing. He was not going to raise him from the sickbed, but raise him from the dead. And so Jesus does test faith. And what was Jesus testing in her case? Well, he certainly wanted to inform her faith a little bit more. Matthew said she called him son of David, a term for the Jewish Messiah. He wanted this woman to know a little bit more about the Messianic plan that God had a priority for the Jews and then the Gentiles. Maybe he wanted to test her faith so it would come forth strong and be an example to the disciples. They were often slow of heart to believe. Maybe Jesus wanted to show them, here's a Gentile woman who has far less information than you do, and yet she has greater faith. But whatever the case, it was a trial of faith for this woman when Jesus seemed to be putting her off. But then we notice beautifully the triumph of her faith We see her response to Jesus, seemingly off-putting words. You're a dog. You're not a child. The children have first claim. She didn't bristle with pride. She didn't lash out in resentment. She didn't storm off in a violent huff because she was called a dog. A proud person probably would have done that. And she wasn't crushed by those words. She didn't curl up in a a ball of self-pity and drown herself in tears. He called me a dog. Instead, we read in verse 28, but she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. You see, this woman is bowing not only lowly in body, she's bowing low in spirit. She's been called a dog and she, she accepts that. Okay, Lord, I understand I'm from a pagan people. I'm from an idolatrous people. I'm I'm from a people who had no claim upon your grace and favor in the past. She comes with a great humility. She also comes with a persevering faith. With a clever wit, fueled by a tenacious faith, she comes back with the answer. But Lord, even the dogs, you know, catch some crumbs that fall from the table Though she may be a household dog by comparison to the children, she's saying even the dog has has access as a domesticated pet to the children's crumbs, and she pleads for a a crumb. She obviously has a high view of Jesus. Oh, she has heard about him, his great compassion, his great power in healing so many. But above all, this woman has faith. It is her great faith which is praised by Jesus. Verse 29, he said to her, because of this answer, because literally of this word, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Matthew says, "O woman, your faith is great. Be it done to you as you wish. This woman had great faith. It was a tried faith, but it was a proven faith. It was a, not only a true faith, but it was a great faith. Well, let's take some lessons to ourselves. Again, expect Jesus to test your faith. Not to destroy it, but to prove it and to improve it. You see, as Jesus dealt with people when he was in his earthly ministry, he's still the same now, isn't he? And it's the same Jesus dealing with his people now. And so we we take a hint from how he dealt with people on the earth, personally and physically with how he's dealing with us now. He's in heaven, but he's the same Jesus. We're disciples like they, and he's dealing with us similarly. And as he often tried and tested people's faith to make it stronger and to manifest it to others, expect that he will do that with you as well. Maybe you're asking something of God that you believe to be his revealed will, and yet he has delayed an answer. It may be that he is deepening your faith, that he is drawing out of you a more humble, persevering faith, knowing something of his ways. Wait patiently and confidently upon him. He is wise and he is good and loving in his dealings. He knows what he's doing, even in his delays to your answer to your prayers, he knows what he's doing. And learn something from this woman of the way we should approach the Lord Jesus. She came humbly with a sense of undeservedness. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you need to come empty-handed. You have no claim on anything. You, You deserve nothing but judgment. Come humbly to Jesus. Say, Lord Jesus, I don't deserve eternal life, but I come to you as a sinner asking that you would forgive me and free me. And even as believers, we need to come humbly to the Lord. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but all his gifts are gifts of grace. We need to come humbly. And we need to learn from this woman in coming persistently to the Lord. You know that Jesus urges persistence. What's the old word? Importunity in prayer. He wants us to pray persistently for something. And He gives a couple of illustrations. Remember in, in Luke 18, the, the widow who comes to the judge and wears him down until she find, he finally gives her what she wants. Now, God is not like a wicked judge, but the point is you need to persevere in prayer. Or the friend at midnight, right? The friend has somebody coming, visiting him late at night. Eastern hospitality demands that he he have something to give. He doesn't have anything. He goes to his friend. His friend's in bed. He knocks and knocks and knocks until finally he he so annoys the, the friend that he comes down and gives him what he wants. Jesus is saying we need to be persistent in our prayers. Now, what's the difference between persistence in prayer and vain repetition that Jesus warns against in Matthew 6? The vain repetition is the Gentiles, you know, repeat, 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 thinking that they're going to nag God to the point where they're going to twist his arm to do their will. No, this is not vain repetition. This is persistence in prayer in matters where you believe it to be the will of God according to his word. And so maybe you're out of work. You're on good praying ground. Lord, you have called me to support my family. If anyone does not take care of his own, he's worse than an unbeliever, Lord. In order to support my family, I need a job. And so you persevere in prayer knowing it must be God's will for you to provide for your family. Lord, I know you, it is your will to save your elect. I don't know who your elect are, but they're out there. Would you direct me to those people who are your elect that through my witness they might come? Lord, I know you're, you want my marriage to glorify you. It's to be a picture of the gospel. A husband's love, a wife's respectful submission is to be a picture of the gospel. Lord, my family's having struggle. My, my marriage is in trouble. I'm struggling. Lord, your glory is at stake in my my marriage. Help us to sort this out. Help me to be a better lover to my wife. Help me to be a, a more submissive, respectful helper to my husband. Lord, the gospel's at stake here. It's your will that we glorify you in our marriage. Persist in prayer. And then finally, we see the deliverance of the woman's daughter. Verses 29 and 30. He said to her, Because of this, this word, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. We see how this woman's great faith, by her word of response, opens the floodgates of mercy and kindness from our Lord. And he grants her request on the spot. In this final point, let me just have us gaze beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ in several areas as it is seen here. First of all, the pity of Christ, the compassion of Christ. Yes, he dealt a bit sternly with this woman. Yet, Yes, he did put her off for a time, but don't let that diminish in your mind your view of the Lord Jesus as full of compassion. He is a willing savior. Matthew Henry says he knew the measure of the woman's faith. In other words, he knew how much she could bear. The test was not intended to to crush her faith, but to draw out more faith, to improve her faith. Jesus will never break the bruised reed. He'll never quench the smoking flax. He will never break true faith by an excessive trial of faith. As incarnate truth, he wanted to expand her knowledge of him and his ways. But as incarnate love, his heart bursts with desire to do her good and to alleviate her suffering. How full of tender pity and compassion is our Lord Jesus. Let's adore him for that. Let's worship him for that. And let's know that when we call upon him, we're calling upon a very willing, compassionate Savior. So we have the pity of Christ. We have the pleasure of Christ in great faith. Not only here, but elsewhere. Jesus marvels at great faith. Oh, how he wants us to trust him. How he is honored when we believe in him and we take him at his word. And so, may we have faith in him that honors him. What are you facing now that is a trial of your faith? Realize how much it means to Jesus that you trust him, how much it will honor him that you trust him and call upon him for the grace to to believe him. Then the power of Christ is evident here. We need to glorify him for his power. He never touched the little daughter. He never saw the little daughter. We're not even told that he spoke a word in her direction. He simply willed it, and the demon was gone. Why? Because Jesus is God. He's the God-man. And as God can will and speak the world into existence, so can Jesus, and so did Jesus. He's God. And so let's glorify him for his power. Let's take refuge in that power and realize that the power he has to cast out demons He also has power to save eternally and to keep his people for their final salvation. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. And then finally, the purpose of Christ to save to the ends of the earth. What do we have here? We have a Gentile, a non-Jew being ministered to by Jesus and a demon being delivered from her daughter. This portends the ultimate purpose of the Lord Jesus, and that is to give Himself for a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the face of the earth. God's purpose was never to restrict itself to the Jewish nation, but to through all the families of, of the through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be would be saved. And it's interesting. And I close with this: Listen to Psalm 87 and verse four. Psalm 87, 4. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. God gave a hint that there would be people from this pagan, wicked, ancient city of Tyre who would be saved. And here is just a sample of his saving mercy. Mercy that is extended to the ends of the earth and to the Gentiles. As far as I know, all of us here are Gentiles. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for another portrait of your, your beautiful person, your great pity and compassion, your great power, your purpose to save, and how you take pleasure in faith. Help us to imitate this Gentile Syrophoenician woman and be persistent in our prayers and implicit in our faith in you, our trust in you, because you are so trustworthy. Help us to do that and so honor you, we ask in Jesus' name.